Some of you know what it's like to be lonely. Some of you have it in your past and you've been delivered from it. Some of you are in it right now. This morning, I'm going to share with you a part of my story. And I'm going to do that because for the next four weeks, we are going to work together at learning how to share what God has done for us for this very simple reason. The way that God delivers people often is when one person who has been delivered is able to share their story so that God uses their story to change the story of that other person who hears of God's deliverance. Most of you have only ever known me as the happy person that stands before you this morning. Uh, You'd be surprised, some of you, to know that there was a day when I was in the darkest loneliness imaginable, for years, in fact. And so here I'm going to tell you some of my story. And I'm going to start with one of the happiest days of my life. It was June 7th, 2003. It was just about 4.30 in the afternoon. It was pouring down rain outside, and I was sitting in a back room in a church in Red Bank with six of my closest friends. We were dressed so well. When into that room comes another friend of mine, which some of you have met, Vito. He's anxious, Christian, he says. Uh, 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 what kind of uh, ceremony, uh, what, what, what style ceremony uh, had you and Michelle planned for today? That was my wedding day. And the service was supposed to start at four o'clock. And the, the person who leads, well, when you get married, it's supposed to be there a half an hour beforehand, right? Not a half an hour after. And Vito had hustled in there because he was thinking he was going to have to put together a service for us. And you know it's supposed to be sunny and beautiful on your wedding day, right? And here it was pouring on the day that I was to be married. And the person who was going to marry us hadn't shown up yet. And do you know I could not have cared less? Because I knew that day I was going to marry Michelle. And nothing could touch it. And listen, let me tell you that it was all the more brilliant for the darkness that had been behind me. And the only reason I was there with my friends, about to marry my wife, was because God had delivered me from impossible loneliness. Here's another part of my story. And can I tell you before I say it, a part of me wants to hide it. Seven years earlier, I had pushed myself into a marriage that was impossible. No matter what I tried, everything was wrong and I learned to believe that everything was my fault and I couldn't tell anybody because I knew if I shared it, then I would even have more challenge and more pain and more struggle. So even though I had friends at Princeton Seminary and even though a lot of people knew me and even though I was married, I was profoundly alone. And only a person who's been in that place can even imagine what that's like. It was like living in a nightmare. And I'm, I'm sorry to, to know that some of you will know that. It would have been different if I could let anyone know, but I couldn't. In the summer of 2000, there was a real scare in Princeton because of West Nile virus. There had been a number of birds that had been found dead in the neighborhood that I lived in. 
I went out one night by myself and I walked onto the golf course in short sleeves. And I sat there as the mosquitoes bit me. And I thought maybe this will be the way that I finally get out of this terrible darkness which I cannot live with any longer. And I wept by myself in the dark and I said to God, would you please get me out of this? I walked away from the golf course late. I came into the neighborhood where I lived. It was married housing at the seminary. I walked on the sidewalk that cut through all of the apartment buildings. And as I passed under a streetlight, I heard the sounds of footsteps behind me. And they were getting closer. And then I felt a hand on my shoulder and I heard my name, Christian. And I looked and it was my friend, Adam. He knew that he wasn't allowed to ask me how I was doing because he knew from what he could see that my strategy was I wasn't allowed to talk about it. So he didn't ask me that. He asked me a different question. He said, how are you making it? And when he asked me that, it was like a spotlight, a spotlight was shined on my loneliness. And right then I stopped walking and I fell onto the sidewalk sobbing and he grabbed me, and he picked me up, and he walked with me away from there, and he took me to a dark field beside where our apartment complex was, and he sat in the grass with me, and he also began to sob right there with me. As for the first time, I let anyone know how awful it was. And that story's not for you. He heard it, and he sobbed with me. And what God did in that moment, listen, is he delivered me from that loneliness by letting a friend come into it with me. And God's deliverance came in the form of another person's tears. I got to be friends with him, really. I got to be friends with Vito, really. Vito knew me for those years, but only the me that I showed because of what I was hiding. My marriage ended very shortly after that. The next fall, a girl named Michelle Hinkle drove from Washington State all the way out to New Jersey. Did someone giggle when they heard her last name? <laughs> I met her. The next fall, I was sitting in a coffee shop with my friend Adam. And I told him over coffee, you know, I think I love Michelle. I think she's God's gift to me. He pushed my coffee away. He grabbed my hand. We left the coffee shop and went across the street where I bought the ring that Michelle's wearing now. The ring that I gave her on that day. I love that you said, oh, you're the best. <laughs> Vito preached that day at, at our wedding. Adam was our, my best man. He read the words of love from 1 Corinthians 13. Vito's sermon was on Psalm 116. I love the Lord. Please listen to this. Because he heard my cry. When I was brought low, God inclined his ear to me and he delivered me out of every distress. I will praise the Lord all my life long because he has saved me. That was the text. God heard me crying. He heard me crying every day in the years before that golf course moment. He heard me crying then and every day since. And I tell you this part of my story, and it's only part of my story. I tell you this part of my story for a reason because what we will see today and each week for this month is that what God wants is for those who have tasted of his deliverance to learn to say so, to talk about it, so that God might use part of their story to change part of someone else's story.
And all of us in here, including those of us who have a story of God's deliverance behind us, all of us need for our stories to be changed yet again by God. Can we admit that together this morning? What? Yes, Yes, thank you. We all need that. And what we need from each other is to hear how God works so that God will continue to deliver. And what the world around us needs is people who have been delivered by God who are able to talk about it so that he uses what he has done for them for others. And please trust me, the world is in desperate need of deliverance. And when I say the world, of course I mean the world at large, but I mean your world. Each of you will have someone in your family where you work, a friend who needs to hear of God's deliverance. And here's how we'll be guided today and and these uh, next weeks ahead of us. It will all be from one place in scripture, Psalm 107. It's a psalm Uh, here, look at this graphic. It's a psalm in which the psalmist says that those who have been delivered should say so. And this image here of hands being freed is meant to capture what God is like. God is the one who knows when we're we're trapped and in distress. And and maybe some of you are trapped and, and in the distress of loneliness. God knows. Maybe some of you are dealing with other kinds of trouble. God knows and what God wants for all of us is for us to be freed. And he is the one who comes to free. And what we're going to learn as we spend our time in Psalm 107 is that what God desires is for those who have been saved by him to talk about it because God wants every single person on planet earth to know him and to be saved and delivered. That's what God wants. And what we'll see is the striking way he does that is when ordinary people talk about it. Let's see how Psalm 107 opens. I want you to notice how it begins. It's so brilliant and simple. The psalmist begins by saying, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. Steadfast means steady and unchanging. It means something that can be counted on. It's not fickle. It won't be removed. You can trust in it like you can trust in bedrock. God's goodness is what is steadfast. And the way God's goodness comes to us is in this word, love. And this is one of the striking features of the God that we meet in the Hebrew scriptures, in the prophets, in the histories, in the wisdom, in the poetry. And it's the God we meet in Jesus Christ. It is that if we had to capture what that God was like in a single word, we would have to say love. And in his love, God is steadfast. The psalmist knows it from experience, and that's why he starts by saying, let us give thanks. If you would, if you have in your own recollection a memory of God's deliverance, would you let your heart be thankful for it in this moment right now? Feel it a little bit. I was just checking to see if Michelle Andrews was smiling, and she was. God delivers us. Look at what The psalmist says next, this is verse two. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. Those he redeemed from trouble and gathered in from the lands, from the east and from the west, from the north and from the south. This is poetry and it's brilliant poetry. The word redeem, that word for the first hearers would have meant something very specific and concrete. If you would imagine for a moment a prisoner who has been trapped because 
a warring nation had taken over and then as they were captive, they were brought and put in prison. Imagine that. Or if you would imagine someone who who ran into difficult times and had to sell themselves to a wealthy landowner to become a servant all their lives long and there they lived in chains. If you'd imagine a person like that, the redemption of a person in this setting would mean the time when someone who had enough money and the will to purchase that person's freedom came along and gave what was required so that the bars would be broken and the chains would fall off so that that miserable person who had been trapped would now be free. That's what the word redeem means. And the psalmist knows that what God does is he comes to people who are impossibly trapped and he frees them. And the kind of people that God frees, this poet captures the truth that it is every kind of person in every kind of trouble that God frees by using the the, the image of east and west and north and south. Oops, I got that backwards. It's reversed up here, okay? God frees people of every kind from every kind of trouble. And that's the truth. That's who God is. Listen, if you're in here this morning and you hear me saying this, and there's a part of you that says, I've never experienced anything at all of what this guy's talking about. I I wish I could, but I have not. I want you to understand that God's inclination toward you is to put you in the place where you experience his deliverance, his redemption for yourself. That's what, what he wants for you. If you are, on the other hand, someone who has it in your recollection, yes, I remember how I was stuck and he freed me then these two words are the words for you. Say so. What God wants is for you to learn to talk about it. What God wants is for you to tell other people a part of your story, of what he's done for you. Because God knows that there are people all around you that are trapped and what God wants is for them to be delivered. And so here we are going to stay. Here this morning and in these weeks ahead, together to learn how to become people who say so. That is, those of us who have been delivered, listen, what God wants for Renaissance Church is for it to be an instrument of his deliverance for others. And that will happen when we learn to talk to people who don't know about God's deliverance in an effective way. When you picture that, when you picture yourself talking to other people out there, I bet you feel a little bit of anxiety. Am I right about that? What? Yeah, I know it's true because it's hard for you even to say anything here and we're all in church together, my goodness. It's hard, right? And, and some of your hesitance comes for good reasons, right? The, the public voice of Christianity that you see on the news, I'm guessing that a lot of what you hear out there, you don't want to be associated with that. Am I true? Because it's only the sensational nut jobs that get on the news. Did I, was that too offensive? Did I say something that's wrong? Okay. And so... The moment I stand and say, it's time for us to learn to say so, and I'm going to challenge you, and I'm going to try to encourage you to do it, quite rightly, there are thoughts that occur to you that will keep you quiet. And what I want to do is pause for a moment and set the psalm aside and dwell for a little bit on four of what I think are the most common thoughts that will keep you quiet. And and I'm going to tell you why I'm going to do this to acknowledge the truth in each one, but then to set them aside so you're not quiet because people need to hear your story so that God can use it to change their story. So here's the first reason that many of us will have, or the first thought that will occur to us, and this thought will keep us quiet, it is that if we start talking about God, I will be labeled intolerant. And nobody wants a label. And labels, oh, everybody wants to put a label on you today, right? 
And there are just so many voices that start talking about God and what they're like. Well, they're arrogant and they're self-righteous and they're all too assured. And they talk about God and they only look down on other people who don't have the same viewpoint as they do. And here we have people all around us who have the same viewpoint. And there's something so unwelcoming and cruel about the way that they talk about God. And of course, we don't want that. And let me tell you, none of us should talk about God like that. If there is a model for how to be in our speech about what God is like, Jesus is a good model. And he is gracious. And he is kind. And he is loving. And there is a way to talk about the truth which is confident and clear and and, and takes a stand, but at the same time is gracious through and through in a way that is respectful of people who don't share the same viewpoint, in a way that just seems fitting given how gracious and merciful God has been with us when we were altogether wrong. And so if it occurs to you that, yes, I don't want to get that kind of label put on me, well then let's decide together that none of us will engage in the kind of dismissive self-righteousness that doesn't look anything like the way Jesus represents the truth. And therefore we're free here to set aside that first concern and say, okay, we won't engage in that kind of talk. And I know if we're willing to do that, well then there'll be a second thought that occurs to us and it will keep us quiet. It's the thought that will say, I'm not prepared to speak about God. Because when you start to imagine that family member or that coworker who doesn't share your faith and who has strong opinions, quite to the contrary, and you think, what would it be like to talk to them? For some of you, it may be your adult children. You think they're going to bring things up and I won't know how to respond to them. They're going to have arguments, really strong arguments against the belief in the goodness of God. And I just don't know what to do with that. They might ask me a theological question and I won't know where to go with it. And you know what? You are absolutely right. You are. They will engage in maybe an argument that you won't win. And they'll ask questions. You won't know the answer. And all of that is absolutely true. But if that keeps you from doing what the psalmist says, well, then you haven't heard what the psalmist says. Because the psalmist does not say, let the redeemed of the Lord come up with an iron-clad argument for the existence of God, which addresses every bit of skepticism from the atheist. He doesn't say that, right? He doesn't say, let the redeemed of the Lord come up with a fail-safe sales pitch that will always work. I see you chuckling. You can laugh out loud in here, okay? The psalmist says, "Let, let the redeemed of the Lord say so. And so, if you go and you don't know something, it is okay to say, I don't know. Yes, you, you, you won't answer every question. And so let's take that one off the table too as a reason not to share. Now you're thinking, okay, well, let me, let me say this. And here's a third thought that will occur to some of you. No one wants to hear my story. Right? Maybe because you are just so unbelievably boring. <laughs> or maybe you've grown up thinking, no, wait, wait, hold on. That's not the reason because I am super interesting. But... But faith is a private thing. That's between me and God. Don't bring that out into public. Well, yes, of course, faith is a private thing. It is between you and God. But it's not meant to stay 
altogether private. Don't tell every detail, but you know what? Listen to me right now. Every, all around you, there are people everywhere who are dying for some person who's an honest, real person to tell them that God has done something good for them. And they don't want it to look like an argument or a fight or a proof. They don't want you to be self-assured and self-righteous. They just want you to be real. And they are dying to hear your story. I know this. I know it. I'll tell you why. Because in these many, many years of my pastorate, I've talked a lot of times to people who are atheists, who don't believe in God. And when I sit down and talk to them, very often they say, oh, I wish someone who didn't get paid to say they believe in God like you do could tell me the truth that God has done for them something that I wish he would do for me. They want to know what he does. They do. I'm telling you, I promise. So maybe you're now ready to say, okay, I just don't have the power. This is the fourth thing that'll occur to you. I just can't make anyone believe. And again, I'll say to you, you are absolutely right. You can't. I know that there are some communities of faith which will gather like we've gathered here this morning and the pastor will say, you must start sharing your faith and do so in such a way that will lead you to believe somehow it's all up to you what happens to that other person. And that's a lie. It's not up to you at all. It never is. It's up to God. It is. God can do and will do what you cannot do and will never be able to do. And so it's not up to you. You don't have the power to make anyone else believe. Take that off your reasons not for not sharing. Okay? All four of these have something legitimate in them. But at the end of it, all four of them are not a good enough reason not to say so. And here, I'm going to give you the single reason, again, why you should say so. It is that all around you and even amongst us here, even for us here gathered, and even for us who have been delivered in the past, what we all need is to hear the truth of how God delivers. We need it. Some of us need it to be reminded of what was true and we felt in the past, which we can't believe anymore because of how life has become. We need someone to say so. Others of us here don't believe and haven't believed yet. And as long as I am up here saying it, I always ha they always have the escape route that, well, that's just the pastor. He's supposed to say that. And they need you, who's not the pastor, to say so. And then all around us in the world, your family members, your friends, your spouses, your children, your neighbors, your coworkers, they are, they are in need of someone to tell of God's deliverance, all for the same reason. All of us, for us who are here and have been saved and for other people around us, it's because we need to be delivered by God. We need our stories to change. And the way God changes stories, often, not only, but often, is through the ordinary stories of real people. Here in Psalm 107, the psalmist tells four stories of deliverance. And the first one, the first one comes in verse four. Let's look at it together now. Next week, we'll look at the second and the third and the fourth and so on. Let's look at the first story together. It's verse four. It's a description. Here it is. Some wandered in desert wastes, finding no way to an inhabited town, hungry and thirsty, their soul fainted within them. Here, the poet wants you to use your imagination to picture a man lost in the desert. As far as he can see in every direction, there's nothing but sand and sun. His hunger is torturing him because he doesn't have any food. Nothing, nothing grows in the desert. And as bad as his hunger is on the inside, it's no match for the thirst which has him in its grips. And he knows if he doesn't get something to drink, he's dead. 
And the only hope he has is if he will find his way to an inhabited town. That means he needs other people. If he goes on alone like this forever, he is going to perish and there's nothing that he can do to help himself. And this is a poetic picture of loneliness. Loneliness is something that some of us right now experience. Someone here came to church this morning alone and they're gonna sit through the service alone and they're gonna leave without anyone talking to them and they're gonna go home and be alone all day today. And loneliness is like being trapped in the desert. You don't have what you need. And the truth is, unless you get what you need, you're dead. And listen, I wanna say this with clarity and I don't need to be dramatic here, but the truth about loneliness is that it kills people, literally. There's a a body of medical research that demonstrates that when a person gets cancer or when someone's brain begins to deteriorate with Alzheimer's or when a person has a heart condition, it is emphatically demonstrable that being alone always accelerates the disease and sometimes in a deadly way. You can find this online. Just search it out. Loneliness is deadly. And And then we know about this because in our own community last week, a young girl took her life because she was alone and couldn't manage it. Loneliness also kills people. Depression can cross a line into mental illness and the only escape that a person can find is is death. Loneliness kills people. And, And as I say it, there are some here who are in the grips of it. And as I tell you this, I was myself trapped in loneliness where I thought death would be a welcome escape. And it is embarrassing to say that to you, but it's true. You know, it would be good if we took away the stigma of having that kind of mental pain. Do you know that? At the funeral I spoke at yesterday, there were almost 900 people there. I said, you honor the death of this young girl if you would agree with me that we're gonna take away the stigma of mental illness and agree that if you need help, there's no weakness in asking, there's strength. And everybody said yes. Would you say yes uh, to that too? Yes. We have all kinds of strategies for dealing with loneliness. In the psalm, the psalmist describes the strategy that this figure of loneliness took. Look at it. This is verse six. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble. And he delivered them from their distress. He led them by a straight way until they reached an inhabited town. For years I was crying to the Lord in my distress and I didn't believe there could be any any escape from the darkness and God heard me and he delivered me and the first deliverance was one friend to cry with me and the second deliverance was that I got freed from feeling ashamed The third deliverance was yet another friend. And then for a long time, it was bleak and difficult and desperate. And I know I talked about that glorious day on June 7th. But even if that day hadn't come, God had delivered me. And the truth is, if you cry out to God, he is faithful to deliver. But you must cry out. And if you do, he will send someone to deliver. He will. If we ourselves are delivered, if we ourselves are strong enough to walk, even with darkness in our lives right now, we must hear right now the call that you might need to be someone's Adam or someone's veto or someone who's choosing not to judge the other person for the mess they find themselves in, but to just sit with them and be, listen to this, be the 
the, the presence of the divine almighty God omnipotent in your tears and in your grief with them and in your sobs. That is how you say God's word to them. I know that some of you have been that for each other. Praise God. Thank you. I know that others of you are called to be a deliverer of God's by simply being with someone and weeping. Do it. Find people who are in pain and go to them and near them. But listen now, this is my challenge to each of us who has a memory and a recollection of God's deliverance from loneliness. It is say so. Look at what the psalmist says after describing this deliverance. Verse eight, let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to humankind. For he satisfies the thirsty and the hungry. He fills with good things. If God has met you in the desert and given you the water and the food you need by delivering you from your shame and your isolation, letting you know that you are okay, God loves you and he's brought you out of that darkness and put you together with others, then what you must do is thank him and the very best way to thank God truly is by getting ready to tell someone else about how he has delivered you with the deep hope in your heart that he'll use part of your story to deliver someone else from their loneliness. Do you get it? I really want you to get it. I want you to get it because some of us here need the deliverance that will come when others of us here are able to say so. And the people around you need that deliverance when you're ready to say so. And so if I've taken the reasons not to say so off the table, then here's what I want to put on the table for you to be very practical. I want to give you some advice and guidance for how to say so. Are you ready? I can sort of tell, but if you can't say an enthusiastic yes here, how are you going to do it out there? So are you ready? Yes, Yes, good. It feels weird for me to do that. I never like that when I'm sitting out there, but get over it. (laughs) Okay, here's number one. How to be a person who says so. Number one, be authentic. Do not try to be someone you're not. Do not try to be more dramatic than you are. Do not try to invent a story that has elements in it which are not true but are meant to tug on the heartstrings that always fails. Do not put it on. Do not pretend you know things you don't know. Do not pretend you believe things that you do not yet believe. If they say to you, well, what about this question here? I don't understand this and neither do you. Then don't be afraid to be authentic and say, I never got that either. If they ask you a question about God that you can't answer, say it. I can't answer that question either. If they say, doesn't that make you nervous? And it does, say, yeah, it does. Be completely authentic. God doesn't get anywhere with people who are fake. It may look like it. It never goes good. So step one is be authentic. If you have 99 tears and one little tiny glimmer of hope, and that's what you have, you can be authentic and go to someone and say, yeah, I cry, I cry most of the time, but I have this. And you let God use that authenticity. Watch what God will do. Be authentic, that's number one. So you can wipe away all of the anxiety of not having enough or or not being able to say something that is as catchy as what the pastor said. Who cares? Just be authentic, that's number one. Here's number two, stick to the facts. That's it. You don't have to come up with something which you don't have. Please remember, Jesus said, be my witnesses, not my lawyers, my advocates, my salespeople, my arguers, none of those things. Be a witness. So you stick to the facts. And so if if these are the facts, are you ready? If the facts are, I was depressed and I was ashamed 
and I hid it from everyone. I was at seminary and I pretended every single day. When my friends talked about how good their marriages were, I was jealous of them and I couldn't tell anybody. And so I went on pretending and it was awful. I hated every second of it. I couldn't even believe in God. And that's the truth. And that is the truth. You can say it if that's the facts. And if the facts are, I was sitting on a stone bench. I was sitting on a stone bench in the courtyard of Princeton University's campus on a beautifully sunny day after that golf course moment. And there were a bunch of students and their parents touring the campus. And we were all sitting there right in the shadow of this gorgeous cathedral at Princeton University. And I had a book open, a theological book open. And there I read about, on the one hand, the sinfulness of every single person. And on the other hand, I read this beautiful poetic image of God seeking us out like a child who had lost sight of his mother terrified in the dark. And that, in that moment, there I am, I'm reading that, I'm thinking, that's me. And then I read that what he must know is before he even thought of calling out to God in the darkness, God had already heard his cry and come to, come to seek him out in his misery and love him. And then I started to weep in front of all of those people on their tour. And snot was coming out of my nose and I bet a lot of students decided not to go to the university that day. Because of <laughs> those are the facts. Stick to the facts. And then if you think, well, I don't have a story that's that powerful, here's the fourth bit of advice. Trust God's power. Because no matter how powerful my words are, they're nothing. But God's power is everything. And since God is the one who said, if you have been redeemed, say so, then you can trust him. It may be a fumbling mess. You may be bad at words. You may be embarrassing to yourself. But God is powerful enough to use even the cold and broken hallelujah, which is a part of your story, to change the life of another person. So say so. I'm feeling it. <laughs> and then this is the most important one I want to say to you today. And I'm going to dwell on this one. Because maybe the person you're picturing is a real skeptic. They hate God and they've cursed him. Maybe it's your child, your son or your daughter. They hate that you're at a church or it's a close friend or a spouse and you're wondering, how will I approach that person? Here's how you're going to approach every person that you ever try to talk about God to. You are going to do this fourth thing. Believe God's love. Please listen now for them. I think one of the things that the church has bad, uh, done a bad job in historically is by giving people the impression that until you believe correctly, or until you behave in the right way, or until you get into the right place uh, in a church, God's disposition toward you has a big question mark next to it. But that's a lie. And if there was any ambiguity about what the truth is about what God feels about any one of us, it was entirely and definitively cleared up, listen now, when Emmanuel was born. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. That's John's way of telling the Christmas story, which says that God decided to become a human person. And if we ever want to know why, the answer is because God loved the world so much and not the world of people who had it right. It says this in Romans, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. Rarely will anyone die for another person, though perhaps for a righteous person, someone might dare to die. But God proves his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. 
And so that means when you stand before that skeptic and that person who has an argument you can't ever consider how you might fight against it and they might hate you and hate God, what you are meant to do by God's grace is believe in his love for them even still. So that God will use the sliver of light from your story to break in upon their darkness and deliver them. So that one day they can be a person who has been redeemed. So that one day they can say from the bottom of their hearts, I was lost and in Christ God found me and now I give my life to him through and through. He is my Lord and my Savior and my friend and I want to tell other people about his deliverance so that they too are delivered. Oh, that would be good. Our work together in these weeks ahead is going to be to work at this so that God will use us to change the stories of others. Will you join me in it? It will not work unless you do. It will not work. We're going to sing in a minute about the glory of God's deliverance. And I trust and I know that every one of you is in a different place when it comes to God's deliverance. In the journey of life right now, you're, you're all over the place, but God is trustworthy and he delivers. Those of us who have been delivered can learn to say so. I will pray now that today and in these weeks ahead that God will help us do it. And I want you to join my hearts in prayer and then we're going to sing. Let's pray. God, we love you. We love you because you are trustworthy. Your goodness is steadfast. Your love never ends. God, for those of us who can believe it and know it this morning, would you inspire our hearts to speak of it? For those of us who are in a place where it's so hard to believe, would you hold us in your hands and help the faith of others around us stand in our place when we can't believe? Would you surround us with the faith of others so that we can move forward? Would you use our simple stories that you've changed stories of others. We ask for this in Jesus' name. We need it. We want it. In his name we say all together. Let's say it. Amen. Amen.